Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Frankie Knuckles was best known as the godfather of house, but that only scrapes the surface. Born in the Bronx, he grew up during the early days of disco and was a regular at the loft and the gallery. He cut his DJ teeth with Larry LeVon before heading to Chicago, where he helped shape and design the warehouse, the club that birthed house music before it conquered the world in the late 80s. While in Chicago, he also spent time recording some of the greatest music for dancing you'll ever hear. In this lecture at the 2011 Red Bull Music Academy, this modern American legend, who tragically passed away in 2014, takes us through his 40-year career, from New York to Chicago and back again, via the rest of the world. This is the house that Frankie built. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Have you ever had issues with the visual accompaniment in one of your parties not being up to par it happens to me all the time <laughs> so how but do you handle that what sort of I wisdom close can you my discuss? eyes and listen to the beat <laughs> okay good um so much to talk about um but your career obviously has spanned um quite a number of different eras and areas i would say um but djing remixing production um, I guess if you had to choose one, is, is there one that's closer to your heart than, than the other? No, they go hand in hand Yeah. at this point. They go hand in hand. Uh, I can't do one without the other. I'm fortunate enough to, uh, have a dance floor all around the world that I can test my material out on. Uh, that's a real big plus. Um, but if I had to choose one before the other, I don't think I could. Because if I choose production, then I don't have a dance floor to test it out on. If I choose a dance floor and not do production, then what have I got other than what everybody else has given me? And there's nothing wrong with that, but I kind of like my stuff too. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess um, just in terms of approach, you know, what is your mindset? You've done so many remixes um, over the years. Um, what is your approach when you're when you're approached about doing something? Um, how much do you take liberty-wise with the original material? What is how do you tackle it? Um, I think I'm really fortunate because um, most artists or other producers that hand the material to me to um, play with is what I call it. <laughs> you know, not just mixing it up uh, professionally, but they give me an opportunity to play around with it. Uh, they trust me enough with their material. Um, the first thing I think about is, I, well, I look for the magic in the song, first of all. And usually the magic is right there in the performance that whoever's singing is giving. Um, if I hear that magic, then it's easy for me to find um, just what direction to go in with it and how to um, build a foundation, uh, an even stronger foundation underneath the song, which is what I call it. Um, it's easy to separate what you're building as a track versus what they're doing as a performance. But the challenge is in complimenting that person singing. And I'd rather do that than just do me. 
You know, it, to me, it's more important to do that for them. Um, it 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 garners you greater acceptance. Uh, you challenge yourself in the process, and then you learn something new. And I've learned something new on every song that I've ever remixed or produced. So that that's the thing I look forward to. And how did you? Who schooled you to to sort of come to that approach? How did you get to that point? Because um, we because we all learn, you know. It's. It's a process. Um, it was a, it was all a part of my growing up. Um, <laughs> okay, here, all right. Here we so go. here we go. <laughs> here, we, here we go. Back in the seventies and the eighties, you know, the dark ages, we used to have <laughs> we used to have these things called twelve-inch vinyl pieces, and you know, albums full LPs, if you will. And the, one of the great things about it is that you can, not only could you look at the cover art, but then you can read the the liner notes on the back which basically told you who produced what, who wrote which song, who arranged it, who was in the orchestra, who was in the rhythm section, um, who, who the engineers were, who the assistant engineers were. I mean, all this stuff, you know, this is what we did as DJs back in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, it taught you a lot about your music and what you were doing. But at the same time, before production, I didn't realize it was actually educating me and getting me ready for this. You know, uh, but I learned about who some of the greatest musicians were and some of the great engineers so that by the time I did get involved in this, then I knew exactly what to seek out in an engineer um, if I couldn't work with any of those great guys. But when you start getting remix projects that was engineered by some of these great guys, you know, then you can sit back and you can dissect what they did and find out how they did it and all the rest of it. It's all a learning process. Now, it's not so much a collective effort as it was back then, because now, for the most part, a lot of you guys are working on your own, you know, uh, in your bedroom and you, you're learning Ableton and machine and you're doing things that way. But I don't know how much fun it is working by yourself versus working with a group of people when you've got a group of people around you that are there for you. You know, uh, you've got engineers that is helping you shape your sound and, and, and perfecting it. And then you've got background singers that are hanging on every note that you've got for them. Uh, and then you've got someone as big as Luther Vandross or Michael Jackson, you know, that is sitting there saying, whatever you want, however you want it, I'll stay here as long as you need me. You know, that's the reward right there. You know, and... Uh, every time you work with somebody like that, you know, or all the engineers, excuse me, not all the engineers, but all the uh, programmers that I work with were all classically trained musicians. So just like they were teaching me music, I was teaching them house music. You know, I was teaching them a different side of what it is they do, you know, and um, infusing certain ideas like playing a very Debussy-esque kind of play piano over a very thick house track uh, or bass line or something like that. It something that blew their mind. Blew mine too, but you know, it's something it's something that they never imagined and or heard of before. But we were we were doing something new. We didn't know if it would work or not, but it did. That's interesting. I mean it's funny because uh even just it's only Wednesday, but this whole week certain things that have come up in conversations up here have echoed other people's conversations as well about um collaboration and working together. It's everything. I think um Two heads is always better than one. <laughs> I'm sorry. It is. I mean, you know, you can have a great idea and I can feed off of it, you know, or vice versa. And then he can come in the room 
and add something to it. And she can come in the room and she can add something to it as well. You know what I mean? And then before you know it, it's so much bigger than the original idea. You're from the South Bronx originally. The Boogie Down. The Boogie Down. Can you describe what the South Bronx was like when you were do I really up have in New York? To, do I really have to? <laughs> well, when I was coming up in the South Bronx, rap hadn't happened yet. That only happened after I left. Nothing special, really. It was, I couldn't wait to get out. I mean, you know, the, the, the most special thing for me was Luther Vandross right across the street. We used to ride the subway down to Manhattan going to school. I went to the high school of art and design. He went to music and art. So usually by the time we reached 59th Street, you know, he'd go right and I'd go left. But then we would always meet up in the same place going back home. So, but that was the most special thing for me coming out of the South Bronx. I mean, it was a tough time for New York City. Um, more or less on the edge of bankruptcy and you know, a lot of other things. Yeah, it was about to go into default. Yeah. Um, so where did the music and interest, how, did it, how was it stoked originally? I don't know. I think it saved my life some kind of way. Um, it gave me a focus um, away from anything else that could have possibly taken me under. You know, uh, when you grow up in the inner city like New York, where the things are as tough as they are, and I'm sure in some of you guys' neighborhoods or where you grew up at, um, where it can be as intense, if you've got some kind of focus that will take your mind away from that, and uh, obviously everybody in here is creative, that's why you're here. And I mean, that's the thing that saves your life. And the thing that saves your life is the thing that you should always concentrate on and always try to make better. That's my feeling. Do you remember which, which music first sort of caught your ear and sort of became a, a sort of a saving thing for you, a salvation for you? Uh, before I started, actually started DJing, well, in the beginning when I started, most of the music I played came out of Philadelphia. And um, the songwriters for, uh, for most of that music, Tom Bell, Linda Creed, uh, who were like in-house stock writers for everybody from the stylistics to the spinners and this one, that the OJs, all those different people. I was just deeply entrenched in everything that they did, you know? And then on the other side, there was Nick Ashton and Valerie Simpson, uh, who wrote everything in Motown in the earlier days. You know, their biggest record ain't no mountain high enough. You know, I mean, uh, I never got an opportunity to meet, uh, well, I met Tom Bell, but I never met Linda Creed. She died a while ago. But Nick Ashton and Valerie Simpson end up being my parents in this business, pretty much. They're like my father and my mother. And uh, I've got a very close, well, Nick just died about a month or so ago. But I have a very close and intense relationship with both of them. And some of the most prolific songwriters in the world. And just studying what they do up close and personal, even before I knew them. You know, that's when you know your life has come full circle. When you're, when you're early on playing these people's music and then all of a sudden one day you become friends with them, you know? And they become your mentors and they become your teachers and they, they guide you and they look at what you do and say, you know, you've got some great ideas and you are really fierce at what you do, but, but I'm gonna show you something else that's gonna make it even fiercer than what that is. You know, that's the best for me. And, and I had people like that around me all my career. So when, when was your first DJ gig? Where, what club? What was the sort of the more steady thing that you had going? It was primitive. 
And I think they probably wouldn't appreciate me calling it primitive. But I mean, it was it was what it was for back then. It was back in 71. This was where? In New York City at a club called Better Days. And um, I wasn't a DJ, but the friend of mine offered me the job because he said that he thought I can do it. It was open five days a week, but they were expanding to seven. They, he asked me to do the two days because he didn't want to do it. I'd had no records. I didn't think I could do it. He felt that I could. I took the job. Um, six months later, I was out of the job. But, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it was enough to give me a taste of what it was. But I still didn't think about it seriously. And then uh, Larry Devan, who I grew up with at the time, asked me to come and work with him to do lights for him at the club where he was working at Continental Bass. And um, doing lights for Larry and watching what he was doing up close, you know, um, Larry would take these extended bathroom breaks where I'm forced to have to play records while he's at the bathroom. So that's, you know... You're not thinking about it, how it's coming together, or the fact that this is what you want to do, but then all of a sudden you kind of sort of fall into it happily by accident. You know, uh, and then you wake up one day and it's five years later and you have to seriously make a decision. Now, back then, uh, the life expectancy of a club DJ, and this is probably going to all sound weird to you guys, was five years. You had five years to, to make it and then move on. You know, you're not going to do this all your life because it wasn't a career as it is now. It wasn't a profession as it is now. But you had five years to do it, have fun with it, and then move on. Uh, and I used to always tell Larry, listen, I'm not going to wake up one day and be 32 years old and still playing records. Now, mind you, I was like about 16, 17. <clears throat> I'm not going to wake up one day and be 32 years old and still doing this. <laughs> well, the joke is on me, <laughs> which, is, which is why they always say, you know, man makes plans and God sits back and laughs. Because I'm 56 years old today, you know, and I'm still doing it. Um, things happen for whatever reasons that they do. But, you know, you wake up, it's five years later. You know, I got to make a decision about what I'm doing. And before I know it, you know, I'm in Chicago. We opened up the warehouse. I got a piece of the business. I'm like 20 years old, you know, and I'm just having a good time. And that's the only thing I was concerned about was having a good time and showing everybody a good time. And a few years later, then I, you know, I reached a point where I had to think about the next logical step in this. You're having a great time playing records and showing everybody a good time, but what's the next logical step? How long can you continue to do this? You know, um, and that's when I began to think about production. Just to backtrack for a quick second, um, um, before um, you had moved out to Chicago. Well, who was responsible in part for you for bringing you out there, and how did you meet that person? <laughs> that is so busted. <laughs> that is so. You just really want to get all of my childhood. <laughs> no, everyone. I think it's pretty compelling. I don't, but okay. Uh, Larry LeBan and I, when we were kids, we were real juvenile delinquents in every sense of the word. Uh, we meant nobody any harm, I promise you. But we were just, you know, we were rough houses. And um, we were about 15, 16. We were at this nightclub um, where everybody was hanging out and we managed to get inside. Um, when the party was over, we were leaving there. Everybody, everybody was usually hanging out outside out front like you usually do. And then everybody began to disperse. So we were left alone and we were leaving. We were walking up the street from the club and there was this restaurant on the corner. 
Larry had the bright idea of the both of us running up inside this truck and grabbing some donuts, you know, because we were hungry. So they had them all wrapped up and stacked up and tied up and, you know, in, in, in court and stuff like that because he was obviously making his morning deliveries. This is like about 5, 5.30 in the morning. So we run up inside the truck and we grab a couple of stacks and now we're running up 2nd Avenue and we run smack into a police car. Now, there's a friend of ours that used to hang out, just to backtrack a little bit, there's a friend of ours that was at the club that night that used to hang out and used to be at all the parties, especially at the loft when we were hanging out at the loft. His name is Robert Williams. So we run smack into this police car. We end up in Central Booking, downtown Manhattan. And we're, because we're juveniles, they send us to juvenile camp. And they would send us to a juvenile camp that's in the South Bronx, about two blocks away from my house. So we're sitting in there. I'm nervous. I'm losing my mind. I'm crazy. I'm crying. Larry's sitting back smoking a cigarette and can't, and can't be bothered with none of it. And all of a sudden, this guy walks in who's a juvenile counselor to see us. And the person is Robert Williams. Robert Williams was the person that asked me about coming to Chicago to open up the warehouse with him. And he ultimately became my business partner there just to kind of tie it all together so you know who was who. <clears throat> but he walked in and saw the both of us sitting there and asked what had happened. <laughs> I was beside myself. I couldn't speak. <laughs> hey, I was a little sissy. What do you want? Um, <laughs> I, could, I, I, I couldn't get it out. So when he read the chart and he saw what we were there for, he was like, you two are so stupid. So immediately, from, <laughs> so immediately from that particular point on, you know, he took us under his wing while we were there and he watched us very closely and made sure nothing happened to us. Um, it seemed like we were in there for years, but we were only in there for two weeks. You know, when you were a kid, everything like seems like it's so much longer than it actually is. But we had only been there for two weeks. Our parents wouldn't come and get us because they figured, hey, listen, you were bold enough to do something as stupid as that, pay the consequences. You know, so uh, and hopefully we would learn something from it. That was the last time I was ever arrested for anything. <laughs> I promise you. But that's how it started. And Robert and I, what happened was Robert originally wanted Larry for the warehouse. But at the time, Larry was building the garage and I was out of work. So I got lucky. <laughs> so I guess also just to backtrack just a second, because you I guess you were at the loft that that night or. Um Tonight. The night when um, with the pastries? No, it wasn't okay. the loft. We were at this club called Stage 45. Okay. It had no DJ. It had a jukebox. This is how far back it goes. Okay. It had to be like 70, 71. Okay. 70. So I guess just from some of these legendary night spots in New York that so many people read about now who weren't there to experience, you know, what did you bring away from those experiences in terms of, in terms of your sensibility? your DJing, everything, you know, can you describe a little for the folks here who, you know, can only read about it or see some pictures online? I don't know how much I can bring to it. Um, it would be so much easier if I could say, you know, you had to be there and then just take, <laughs> and then just take you there. You know what I mean? Um, I have people asking me all the time, how much different is nightlife now versus back then or how different are clubs now versus back then? Um, a party is a party no matter the way you go. So there are good parties and there are bad parties, and there are good clubs and there are bad clubs. I think nightlife is pretty much the same. I think technology changes everything. 
You know, whereas back in the day, you can step up to the bar and get a free poured drink. Now they're usually measured by some machine, depending on where you are. Um, sound systems were analog. Now they're digital. The sound was much warmer back then. Now it's a little bit colder. Uh, what you listen to mostly was song-based. Now what you hear mostly is, is track-based. You had um, singers in groups and uh, orchestras and uh, bands and, and, and rhythm sections and everything that made up one particular production. You know, Now you have one person sitting in a small room doing it. Um, saying all that, as much as it's changed, it's still pretty much the same, or vice versa. I've amassed an enormous library of not just music, but um, from playing all these years, and a lot of vinyl, uh, which I'm going to be getting rid of soon. Um, but um, all these years of playing, and all the music that I've had to play is all stuck back here. And um, the sensibility... Uh, and the approach towards each particular song and the way I've played it over the years and stuff like that pretty much feeds into what I have to deal with now that's current. And I still apply the same thing. Um, I'm not a showman when it comes to playing. Um, I'd rather be tucked away in a corner somewhere and feeding you what I've got, take it or leave it. Some guys have got to be out front and they have to have all of this, you know what I mean? And they need to put on a show. I'd rather the music speak for itself because not everybody has good taste in music, but those who do shine. Um, at the warehouse, was that more or less the, the MO for you? I mean, were you tucked away someplace in the room? Absolutely, absolutely. I actually, the DJ booth was constructed on the loading dock at the back end of the room. And a lot of times people come, it was three stories. And on the, uh, there was a basement that was the main floor, which was where the dance floor was. And then there was the lounges that was upstairs. So when you came into the building, you actually went upstairs and then you came back down at the back of the, back of the building. So when you got to the back of the room and you came down, that room was usually dark or the lights was going. And if it was in the dead of winter, uh, we throw on the exhaust fan. So all of a sudden, all that condensation in the room would just turn into natural fog if you will, and you could hear nothing but the crowd in there, you know, uh, screaming and making whatever kind of noise it was, you know, and that was pretty much it. You know, uh, it sounds like, you know, some people have romantic notions about it. it must have been all of these different crazy things, but it was really, really simple. We just had a fabulous sound system in there, you know, and because of my education in sound with Richard Long, who actually designed the sound system, it always sounded as good. Um. Was, um, was that Robert's and yours vision was to, I mean, was it based on anything as far as the stuff in New York, the places in New York, or was it sort of creating this entire new thing? Or I it guess was, what was your mindset going into this? It was, it was Robert's concept to begin with, and it was based on the loft, on David Mancuso's loft. Um, it almost became that for me because when I first moved to Chicago, I lived there for like maybe the first two years in the building, um, which was in a remote part of the city that had been abandoned because so much industry and business had moved out of this industrial area and stuff like that, that there was nothing around there. Now it's one of the richest neighborhoods in Chicago because Oprah Winfrey moved in and 
opened her studio and then everybody else came following. But back then in like 77, there was nothing there but me living in that neighborhood. I mean, I'd have to travel so far out of the neighborhood just to get groceries and things like that to bring back there. Um, but the concept pretty much built on David Mancuso's loft. And um, it was strictly membership. Uh, we only catered to the membership. Uh, only members were allowed to bring their guests. And if someone wanted membership, they had to be sponsored by five of the members that were a part of the organization. Um, and it stayed that way probably the first three and a half years. After that, it, uh, it became a free-for-all. How so? Well, the doors got slung open to anybody and everybody. Uh, membership was no longer important. Um, but that came on the heels of us opening up on Friday nights. Uh, and we did a lot of fraternity parties and special parties for different people. People were able to actually rent the place out on Friday night. And so, it, you know, and all the talk was about Saturday night there. And everybody was curious. They heard it was a gay club. They heard it was this, they heard it was that. But it was like, no, but it's not about that. It's about the music. You got to come on Saturday. And so a lot of people would sneak in on Saturday nights, and then all of a sudden, it's just the crowd changed. It just turned over. And um, the membership was no longer important, you know. And the thing that actually um, forced me out of there or forced me to, to quit was the fact that it just became dangerous. Um, people were beginning to get robbed on the dance floor at knife point. Um, hideous things like that. And at that particular point, I just thought, this is no longer the club that uh, my heart was into. So it was time to go. What were some of the records that were big at the warehouse initially? <clears throat> wow. Uh, Let No Man Put the Sunder was big um, by first choice. Mainline by Black Ivory was, was huge. Uh, oh, wow. It was, it, it was such a wide variety of music that I used to play there because it wasn't all just... R&B and soul. I mean, you know, there was some post-punk stuff I used to play, you know, some Grace Jones things and this, that, and the other. I mean, a little bit of reggae around the edges, some really deep soul. I mean, it's, it's, it was some of everything, literally everything. And when, when was the first time you heard somebody refer to house music? Uh, maybe, <clears throat> maybe 80, 81, somewhere around there. Um, I was in a car with a friend of mine going to his house out on the south side, and we were at a stoplight. And there was a tavern on the corner that had a sign in the window that said, we play house music. That was the first time I heard it. Well, I saw it, and I asked him what it was. And he said, is that music you play down there at that club? <laughs> I was like, excuse me? <laughs> He's like, that's house music. And I just said, oh, I didn't realize it had a name. And so he was like, well, it's the house. It's what everybody calls it. He was like, it's everybody's nickname for the place. And I just thought, oh. And that's when I felt, you know, that's when I really felt like I belonged in Chicago. That was the first time I actually really, really felt like I was a part of the okay. city. Uh, the fact that, you know, um, people had given it a nickname, you know, and that they thought of me and that music all at, you know, all together, all in one. There's familiarity. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I think I also might have read something about maybe record stores locally also using that description, house music in well, the stores, worked, or, or how did that come about, actually? Maybe you can clarify. Well, I worked at one particular record store, and um, this record store had a record pool in the beginning, and 
there are no record pools now, but record pools are basically a place where all the DJs were part of this particular membership and we all got the same records and shared in, you know, what we got. And this is back when everybody was still playing the same music. Um, uh, not so much now. But um, the record pool also opened up a record store and I became one of the buyers for the store because uh, so many different people out of New York, I, I still travel back and forth to New York City once a week. And uh, I have so many connections for music in New York. And through those connections, I got a job working at the record store and being a buyer. Um, but there were... Um, other stores that were beginning to put in these particular sections, you know, uh, Frankie's Picks, you know, Frankie's Warehouse Picks or Ronnie Hardy's, you know, yada, 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 that kind of thing. And uh, then all of a sudden, our store had opened up this whole section called, you know, the house section. And then, you know, when you come in the store, you come in the store, that particular part of the store would be packed. Mm. All these DJs or wannabe DJs or would-be DJs would be over there looking for the you know the next big thing, and before I started working there as a buyer, you know they would buy everything in such small quantities, you know, and I'm looking at all the other guys in the store, you know, that are there to try and you know get there early because they wanted to make sure they can get a copy of things, you know. The minute I became the buyer of the store, I tried to make sure I bought everything in a great enough abundance so that everybody could have it, you know, because it's horrible to go into a record store, and I'm sure you guys can, some of you guys can probably recognize this. You go into a record store to buy a record, but then only two or three copies come in. And you're not even considered as one of the people that's going to be lucky enough to get it. You know, that's horrible, isn't it? Isn't that the worst? You know, and I just never felt that kind of thing. So I just always tried to make sure, you know, that there was always enough there. And a lot of times, you know, I would record things, put them on cassette, this, that, and the other, just to make sure that, you know, somebody else can have it. So that we're all on the same page musically, you know what I mean? Because... I know that feeling going in, you want it and somebody's sitting next to you and they got it and you can't get it and they're looking at you like, huh. <laughs> you know, when you know that you're going to play that record better than they would. <laughs> you're going to love it more than they did, you know. And you were playing, you, were, you had an ear for the imports as well. Um, That's what I was basically yeah, buying was, all the imports. Okay, yeah. so what was catching your ear at the time? Um... Things like Martin Circus, Disco Circus, uh, Nick Stryker, a little bit of jazz, uh, a lot of stuff out of Canada, uh, uh, Geraldine Hunt, Can't Fake the Feeling, I mean, all those different things that have been sampled so many times now and so many different songs have been written to, but a lot of that earlier stuff. Change, right. Love is Holiday, Paradise, all the stuff that Luther sang on, yeah. Um, and I guess if you could describe a little bit about... Um well, you weren't lying when you said it gets hot up here. I told you it gets hot. Yes. That's why we have water here. Refreshments for you Thanks. if you need to be replenished. It's warm up here. Yeah. Um, I was going to, oh, this is how we segue into the production. So you were doing edits as well at this point, or when were you doing the edits? I started doing the editing uh, when I was still at the warehouse, uh, probably in... 1980, I say late 79, early 80, uh, a very close friend of mine that was hanging out at the club had just started, um, he went to school for engineering. And so he came in one day and he said that they were in, the, he was in the part of his class now where they're learning how to edit tape. And so um, he asked me to give him some songs, some records to take home, and he was going, he was going to cut them up and re-edit them. 
Okay, okay. So I gave him a handful of records to take home, and he came back with these mixes, these edits that he had done. And I was really, I was really, really impressed with what he did because he really took these songs and he turned them around. And I thought that that was fascinating. And so I just thought, hmm, maybe I need to try this. But I didn't want to have to go to school to do it. So I was like, give me a splicing block. So he got me a splicing block and some tape, and um, I bought a reel-to-reel, and I sat at home, and I started cutting up everything inside. And that's what started it. How long did it take for you to get nice with the, with the uh, splicing Actually, block? it didn't take me that long at all, because he showed me a couple of He showed me just what to look for where to mark the tape, how to cut it, how to put it together. You know, um, I picked it up like that, you know, and then I was off and running. Uh, like I said, I was cutting up everything. You know, but you, but then I had, you know, I realized that, you know, you have to think about things like continuity when you're doing stuff like that. You know what I mean? You don't want to just be so repetitive that it's boring. You know, you uh, you have to give us something extra that's going to, make it pop so that it isn't just one drone thing going on. You know, and that's when I started playing around with things like rhythm makers and uh, running part of the tape backwards so that it would just add a different effect and doing things like that. Just, hey, listen, <laughs> I was probably on drugs half the time anyway, so it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to find something different to do just to keep the dance floor interested and in coming back every week. Right. I mean... From I was young. I could do those things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here. I could talk about it. <laughs> I mean, obviously, in more recent times, the you know edits, because of technology, everybody does an edit. Everybody wants to try to do edits. Do you have any sort of, uh, what's your perspective, I guess, on the predominance of that sort of approach nowadays from having been there when it was a matter of reel-to-reels and splicing blocks and a lot of physical labor well that was that was part of the fun for me you know um, I can't I can't really speak against what technology has has brought to it now because you know you guys don't know any different you, I mean you didn't know what it was to do that, you know, or, and, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to generalize when I say that, but I think if you came from that and then know this now, um, it'd probably be easier to really form a serious enough opinion about it. Um, the next project I'm working on, I'm going right back into a live facility to do it. And it's probably one of the most expensive undertakings I can do, but I'm only doing it I'm really doing it for me. I'm not doing it for anybody else. I'm doing it for me. It's just kind of sort of like getting back to my roots when it comes to production, you know. Um, and I can still utilize every bit of today's technology to do it, but I like the idea of having all these people buzzing around me in the studio and making it possible for me to make my dreams just that much bigger than what I can imagine they are. Um, but, you know, when it comes to your approach and when I look at how everything is done now on a computer, I mean, you know, we have, we work in Pro Tools now studio and, you know, we have Ableton and Machine and all the rest of this different stuff. And yes, it cuts a lot of corners and it shaves a lot of time of what can be done because um, I guess in, in this day and age, it, 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 it's all about time. But uh, when you look at it as if time doesn't matter, then, you know, uh, it's kind of nice, you know, but you can only do that with your own money. 
You can't do it with anybody else's money. You know, so that's that's just my feeling about it. But I mean, you know, I've, I'm lucky to be where I'm at so that I can do that. And if it puts me in a poor house, I don't care. <laughs> you know. Well, what was the what was the turning point for you then making that jump from just DJing to actually doing your own records? You were doing some in Chicago at the time as well with with uh, folks you still work with now. The turning point was Jamie Principal. Um, and who is Jamie? Uh, Jamie Principal um, is a kid I met. He came in a record store when I was working as a buyer. And this was uh, right after Letting a Man for the Sunday came out. And it was doing really, really well. And a mutual friend of ours had brought him in the store and introduced me to him. And Jamie asked me if I would consider producing him. And I had never produced anything on anyone before that. And um, I was like, you got to be kidding. And he was like, no. He was like, I really want you to do it. He was like, Jose thinks the world of you and thinks that you're great and that you can do it. He was like, and I've heard the Letting a Man for the Sunday. You know, and he's played all these different cassettes of your stuff. And he was like, and I really, really want you to do it. And I told him, again, I've never done this. I was like, I don't know what you expect. He was like, well, listen, he was like, this is all new for me, too. And he was like, I've got patience. He was like, he was like, I trust you. you I, I, I know you'll know what to do. And uh, that's how it started. And so... When we immediately got started on uh, on working on his material, all of his all of his songs were like books, small books. He would come in with pages and pages and pages of lyrics for one song, and I found myself having to just like really throw away a lot of that stuff and trim a lot of it away. It was it was more than what was necessary because at the heart of all these songs was so much simplicity, but he had so much going on, on top of it, you know. So I just figured, let me just kind of sort of thin this out a bit. You know, and just concentrate on, on on what's sweet about it and what's innocent about it and what's natural about it. And that was your love when we first did it. And we recorded in the DJ booth at the power plant on top of it. So okay. talk about not even a real recording studio, you know, in the DJ booth. So that was 25, almost 26 years ago, maybe 27 years ago. Um, but we've since redone it this year. And it's the current single that we have out now. And um, I want you, I want you to notice the difference in two things. Uh, one, how much technology has really changed sound and helped aid us to bring a different reality to it, and how much tempo has changed to how people dance back then to how they're dancing now. Can you talk a little bit about just you mentioned that originally you recorded in the DJ booth at the power plant. So the yeah. power plant was the club after the warehouse. Yes. And how long? Did, were you there for? The power plant only ran like two years, two and a half years, because of my focus on production was getting greater. I'm spending all this time with Jamie and working on him and working on his material, and I found that all the money that was coming into the power plant was actually going into production. My production career, me learning how to do things, working on Jamie. Work. I was working exclusively with Jamie, so I mean, <laughs> all the money I was making, I was spending on him, you know. Um, and more focus ended up going into production than into what I needed to be doing with that club, and so I couldn't do both. I also couldn't DJ at a club and run a club too. It's just impossible. It is. It's impossible because something's going to come up short somewhere, and the club was beginning to suffer. And so to keep it from really suffering, I just decided to close it down. 
and focus more on production. And then move back to New York. Ultimately, yeah. Yeah. To be closer to the business of making music or Well, I felt that- like I had done everything I could do in Chicago. There was no there was no more room for me to grow. Um I got my feet wet as far as production. I mean, I did a lot of remixes and production for people back in the early day, working with Finger Zinc, Marshall Jefferson, Joe Smooth, Chip E. I mean, everybody, you know, uh, doing music for all of them. And there was nothing else I can do. I mean, the industry in Chicago was limited. Um, You know, the industry outside of Chicago was much greater. I had an opportunity to move either to London or move back to New York. Um, moving back to New York proved to be the best idea. You know, um, I got it on the ground floor of Def Mix. And when I came into it, I came in with a pocket full of remixes that people were asking me to do for them. So I brought something to the table. You know, and just at a time when Def Mix was about to open its doors and try and uh, find its way into the industry, you know, I helped bring it in. Can you explain what Defmix is for those who may not know? Defmix is a production company that was formed by myself, David Morales, and Judy Weinstein. Uh, Judy Weinstein is, she's my manager one, but she's also my best friend and she's the heart of this business and what we do. David Morales, uh, most of you probably know who he is. He's my, uh, he's my partner and we started in this together. Uh, and in starting this together, we, the minute we started doing remix work, uh, we didn't realize at the time we were doing it, but we were actually changing the shape of how it's done. Uh, before what, before us, basically, when you did a remix, you worked with what was available to you. Uh, by the time we got started, we were bringing in musicians and completely overdubbing everybody's songs and rewriting the music and the tracks, everything. Um, there was no two no bass lines. There was no... You know, we had to really work with the songs that were there. But then, you know, when you look at the people that we were working with, you know, um, Mariah Carey was pretty much like David's for a while. She was like his girl. You know, that was his his kind of sort of protege, if you will. He did everything for Mariah, you know. And um, in between, I'm working with everybody else. So, um, but what we did was we would take these songs as they were originally written and just completely rewrite the bed of music that they were written to, give them a bit more energy. And that's the kind of production house we were. So we actually changed the shape of how remixes are done. But then Puffy comes along and says, this is a remake. <laughs> and that they were responsible for it. <laughs> I haven't had a discussion with Puffy. <laughs> No. Say it again. <laughs> Have you, you haven't had a discussion with Puffy about the... Uh, oh, please, no. no. Please, okay. no. <laughs> like to be a fly on the wall and that <laughs> discussion takes place. <sighs> Next. <laughs> right. So, the remixes, Def Mix, mm. that point in your career, then you're DJing where in New York? What was the big um, move I for you then? Well, when I got my first record deal, um, I was playing at, I was, well, I was, I was playing at a club. This is a, a, a small, small situation. Um, there was a group of people that were, used to be employees and part of Paradise Garage, and they decided they were going to open up Paradise Ballroom in New York City after the garage closed. <clears throat> they somehow pulled me into it. It was very short-lived. 
uh, because the building that they got was a was um, a landmark in New York. And with a landmark building, you can't cut into the foundation or do anything like that, change or reshape it. It's against the law. So what they did was they put a truss up in the ceiling uh, to put these lights on. They had to go through the foundation of the building in order to do that. And that was pretty much over with. So at the same time, I get signed to Virgin Records and asked to produce an album. Uh, and I'm working on, I'm in the studio now, and I'm working on the very first song for the album, which was the whistle song. And I get a phone call in the studio telling me that Junior Vasquez had walked out of Sound Factory and if I would consider coming there and playing. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know. So I, I'm thinking, you know, I don't read much into it. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, you're going to go play tonight and that would be it. But at the end of the night, um, I was offered, you know, residency there and I accepted it. And after about six months later, Junior decided he wanted to come back. They managed to, I guess, iron out whatever the differences were, he and his partners. And he wanted back in, so they came and told me that Junior wanted back and he was coming back. I was heartbroken and a little disappointed, you know, because uh, I'm just really feeling this and I'm just like really caught up in it. But they had told me, they were like, but you know, we've got something special for you anyway. And what happened was they were building Sound Factory Bar smaller tighter but it was perfect for me I didn't want a room as big as Sound Factory anyway I had inherited that room and then inherited everything that came along with it which was all of Junior's foolishness but <clears throat> you, you had to be there <laughs> but um, the fact that they were building Sound Factory Bar for me uh, building the sounds totally to my specification uh, and the style of music that I produced and wrote and, and and played who would turn down something like that I think every DJ in the world wants his own room where it's built to his specification you know sonically it works it, it's no matter what you put on no matter what point in the room anyone is standing it sounds even all the way around that's pretty much what they did for me um, and that's where everything really changed and while you were at Sound Factory Bar, the album came out? The album came yeah. out, did really well. Uh, the Whistle Song was, of, of course, the biggest song off the album. Um, there was two singles that came off the album. That was it. Well, actually, there was three. There was a Whistle Song first, and it was It's Hard Sometime, and then Rain Falls. Uh, and then Virgin asked me to do another album. But the, the strange thing is that Virgin was not ready for that record when it came out. And to this day, I'm kind of sorry that I even gave it to them. Um, Everybody was stammering for it in New York City. They wanted it. It was there was talk about it everywhere. People were trying to bootleg it or get it anywhere they can. Uh, we were very protective of it. Didn't play it everywhere. I mean, I played it as a club, but you know, I had to make sure that nobody was recording it or anything like that. Uh, technology wasn't what it is now, obviously, or else somebody would have had it and it would have been on the internet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> before you can take your second breath, but. Um, we protected it as best we could, but then, you know, um, once it, of course, once it came out, they didn't have enough vinyl anywhere. You know what I mean? In New York City, the day it was supposed to come out, they sent, I think in total, 500 copies to just one record store. We had to call Philadelphia. We had to call L.A. We had to call Miami, uh, New Orleans. We called so many different cities 
to get them to ship what they had to New York City just so that we can have enough to, you know, because the demand was so great for it. Um, and it still wasn't enough. So that didn't necessarily get you off to the greatest, uh, the greatest. Well, thank God everybody label. loved the record yeah. and still wanted it. Right. You know, uh, for that, I got lucky. Thank God people still wanted the record. So for that, it was good. You know, uh, the second shipment finally came in, I think, about 10 days later. But that was one of the nightmares of being associated with a major label. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you work on a piece of music like this for so long, and then uh, the minute it's out of your hands, at least for me, the minute it's out of my hands, it's, it's out of my hands. It belongs to everybody else at that point. And uh, I just move on, and I, I keep trying to move forward with what I'm doing. Um, you know, I think one of the cool things about some of the work from this era of yours as well is um, it's even though you're a house producer, it's pretty varied. It's very varied in terms of tempo, in terms Thanks of Thanks for style. recognizing that. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously that was the plan, right? I mean... I don't know if it was a necessary plan. Um, the last thing... I mean, you know, people are going to judge you for what you do, you know, and that's a sad, sad thing about any kind of art form, people are going to judge you. Um, one thing I never want to be judged for is, you know, or being accused of is being a one note. Uh, I think um, that's that can be a pre- pretty ugly thing because it causes you to start doubting yourself or questioning your own validity. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And when it comes to anything else... I meet the challenge every time. You have to, because you'd be surprised what comes out in the end. You know, but I just don't want to be thought of as being a one note, um, which is why I work in a completely different arena now. I'm working at a pace that works well for me. I'm working with everybody I want to work with, and everybody's putting their trust in me um, to do the right thing by them, and so far it's working out. I mean, you mentioned... um Obviously, a huge success with remixes and production. But then you mentioned like being surprised at being approached to do the Hercules and Love Affair thing about stepping back. Um, I wonder if you might just spend a moment just saying anything about what that experience was like as far as you adjusting to different changes in your career. Um, to be at this a long time or as long as I have, you know, you get so caught up in uh, living it. Uh, breathing it, eating it, swimming it, whatever you want to call it. Just, I mean, it's every day, every day um, that life catches up to you and you don't realize what it is until it knocks you on your ass, you know? And when it knocks you on your ass and you have to get back up or stay on your ass, you know what I mean? And... When my health began to fail me a few years back or several years back, um, you know, your blessings come in various various disguises is what happens. And now, mind you, I'm tr- constantly traveling around the world and people ask, keep asking me, how come you're not producing any music? How come you're not making any music? You know, and personally, I know that I'm not making it because nobody's really interested in hearing it. I don't, re- I don't realize how many people are actually asking me to do this, you know, until it finally catches up to me. Uh, but then when I was forced to have to sit at home and rehabilitate and convalesce and all the rest of this different stuff, I had plenty of time to think about, well, what are you going to do? And 
You know what I mean? And at that particular point, that's when I decided, okay, well, maybe I can try this again. But I had to also think about the fact that everybody knows the name Frankie Knuckles in this business, and everybody knows what I can do, and they associate a certain sound with my name and what it is that I do. So I figured I need to reinvent myself in order to get back. But I don't want to do it and it'd be Frankie Knuckles reinvented himself and they automatically see my name first and say, oh, well, we know what we're going to get. We know what it is because we know what he do. So what I had done was I completely reinvented myself alongside my partner, Eric Cupper, as director's cut. And we started doing a lot of indie bands and small groups and people that are trying to uh, break into the business. Uh, we started working with a lot of these people. Uh, I called it a lot of pro bono work because uh, I meet a lot of people all the time all around the world that are trying to either put their first record out, uh, looking for a remix on something that they're doing, um, even some established artists that haven't worked in a long time. And I thought that Director's Cut would be the perfect launch pad to help everybody. And that's what we do is we're pretty much a launch pad. You know, we take on whatever projects we believe in and we bring them to fruition. And then we hand them back to that artist and say, listen, if you can't get a deal with this, that, but it doesn't cost them anything, you know, in the process of getting it done. Because if we hear it and we believe in what it is, then we make it happen. We take it, we get it ready is what we do. So we put a little spit and a little polish on it and we make it ripe and ready that at least the industry would pay some attention to it otherwise if they tried to get their foot in the door it would never happen mm -hmm. you know and so that's how I reinvented myself and over the past couple of years now there's been a lot more focus being put on who director's cut is and earlier this year we released our first single with Jamie which was I'll take you there and then um, that was the first number one single we had this year and then we had our second one with uh, Human Life, which is in it together this past summer, mm -hmm. and now you love. Mm -hmm. So it's it's it was a good thing I saw the red flag when I did. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, otherwise I probably wouldn't be sitting here. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. But we also do various things around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, do check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us uh, while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. For now, thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom.